Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're on podcast seven for land use planning. Uh, seven of nine, actually, because you'll recall that one was divided into A and B. Uh, Bruce is across the table. I'm here. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about environmental monitoring. So what is environmental monitoring? Yeah, well, environmental monitoring is the measurement of environmental components over a period of time. So some examples of things that we might measure are air quality, water chemistry, water flows, soil chemistry, plant growth, plant survival, wildlife populations, including their survival, health and reproduction, natural resources use, so for example, hunting, trapping, gathering and fishing, and uh, as mentioned before in part one, traffic patterns, density and patterns near a project site are often measured to assess any changes in traffic safety. And those are just a few examples that uh, things that we would want to monitor. So I, I know we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. We're monitoring not simply the biophysical environment, but also the sociocultural environment. That's right. So what is the purpose of environmental monitoring? What, what, why do it? Well, there's, uh, I would point out three reasons why we want to do environmental monitoring. The first is to ensure that the proponent implements the recommendations made in the impact assessment for mitigating or controlling or preventing adverse effects. So we want to know whether the operator is actually putting into place those things that were recommended in the EIA. The second is to evaluate the effectiveness of these measures in protecting environmental components. And uh, if it turns out that the measures recommended in the EIA were insufficient, then we can propose strengthened measures or different measures where it's necessary. Now, I suppose there are very uh, there are various um, levels or qualities of environmental monitoring. What what's required for monitoring programs to be effective? Well, they should be based on a clear understanding of the environmental setting of the project, and as well as a good knowledge of the potential effects of the project. So the program should focus on but not necessarily be limited to significant adverse effects identified in the EIA. And that uh, brings me to another reason to do monitoring, which is to back check on the accuracy of the predictions of impacts in the environmental assessment so that future environmental assessments can be done uh, better. So it's, a, it's sort of a ratcheting effect improving through, through observation. That's right, continuous improvement. And I suppose, and this is a theme that we've touched on repeatedly, it's not simply a case of uh, empirical science uh, coming to bear. Indigenous knowledge must, must play a huge role? Indigenous knowledge plays a very significant role in uh, charting where the uh, plants and the wildlife and the water are going because, uh, and we've talked about this in a previous podcast, because often indigenous knowledge goes back for generations, whereas uh, empirical science may have only one or two years of experience to uh, acquire baseline information. And I noticed to bring me up to speed, you've provided me with a list of four types of environmental monitoring. Baseline, impact, compliance, and environmental effects. Can you tell us a bit about baseline monitoring? Baseline monitoring is uh, what I was talking about a minute ago, which is collecting environmental data before the project 
construction and implementation so that we can make an accurate assessment of what the real effects of the project were before and after. What about impact monitoring? What does that mean? Impact monitoring looks at the same environmental parameters during project construction and operation stages as well sometimes as the post-project or abandonment stage, which is, can be really important. And compliance monitoring? That's more monitoring for compliance with laws or guidelines or regulations. So we've talked in the past about various bits of federal legislation, for example, but could compliance monitoring also uh, relate to bylaws and regulations that the First Nation has? That's right. That uh, would be rolled into the overall mitigation and monitoring plan. And the list that you gave me concluded with environmental effects monitoring. Now to the layperson that sounds like a synonym for the others, but is it is it somehow different? Yeah, it is. Um, so in the past, environmental monitoring was done mostly on measuring the, the um, biophysical aspects such as chemicals in the air, chemicals in the water, uh, soil, etc. But uh, more recently, we're, we're looking at the actual effect of these changes in the air, water, and soil. So here we're deal dealing with live organisms, and we want to measure what actually happens to the living animals and plants that are, that are being exposed. So it's not enough just to go out and uh, measure chemicals. What we need to do is, is measure the effects on actual living things, and not only just their survival or abundance, but also what's in their tissues and whether they have liver damage, uh, that, that sort of thing. So we're looking at causation. What's the effect, for instance, of putting lead in a watercourse? That, that's right. What's ad adaptive management? Well, that's an interesting one. Uh, it involves monitoring and it involves management at the same time. So sometimes governments will approve a project to proceed, even if there are unknowns and how the environment will respond to stressors stemming from the project. An example would be the development of the oil sands in northern Alberta. To deal with these uncertainties, the, the government established a far-reaching and intensive research and monitoring program to study the effects of known pollutants and other stressors on the plants and animals of the area in collaboration with industry. And by stressors, by the way, I mean something that is produced by the, the project, like lead or arsenic or uh, siltation pollutants. But, but slow down a minute there, Bruce. The shortcomings in such an approach are obvious. Could you elaborate? Yeah. Um, the, the approval for go-ahead is based on, often based on the jobs and economic spin-off of uh, benefits expected to result from the project. And on that basis, it is deemed to be in the public interest. The condition would be that an adequate monitoring program be carried out during the construction and operational phases of the project, and that if problems are observed, the appropriate measures are taken. So we can call this adaptive management, but it's, it's pretty controversial. I can imagine. Um, how might this approach be taken, say, just off the top of my head, what about an oil spill, either from a, a ship or a pipeline? In that case, the monitoring would have to take place. The, often there's very, very little uh, baseline monitoring, but uh, often a cleanup is uh, 
plan, a plan needs to be developed by the proponent in construction with a nearby community if they're affected. So, so it strikes me that, that given that uh, there's, a, there's the potential for a conflict, say, between public, public good, public policy on the one hand, jobs, and the environment on the other, there must be some negotiation between the various parties? That's right, because uh, often these, the approach of adaptive management is very controversial because there'd be a disagreement on uh, all of the sides. So in my experience, there's a number of things that should be in, into place in addition to a monitoring program. There needs to be a negotiation between the party responsible for the project or the spill and the, the regulatory body and or the adjacent communities. So before buying into an adaptive management agreement, several things must be negotiated as follows, and I would number them as three. First, an adequate environmental monitoring program to detect changes in the air, water, soil, vegetation, animals, or anything else that may be affected by the project or by the spill. Secondly, a trigger point that when reached signals a significant adverse effect and it's been agreed in advance that mitigation must be strengthened or, or replaced with methods that may work better. And thirdly, one or more alternative approaches that are potentially more successful as mitigation or cleanup and which are agreed upon in advance as potential replacements if the first methods used are unsuccessful. That sounds very reasonable. In fact, I guess in your view it would be unreasonable to proceed without those that's right. Uh, th without those things being considered, especially alternative approaches. That's right. And it, unfortunately, it, it happens often. And there's no, um, well, we've got to the end of this, we've reached the, the trigger point that is unacceptable. But uh, guess what? We don't have any plan to replace it with. To me, that's not reasonable. Alternative approaches must be agreed in advance. And these are the arguments that we often read about in the press uh, between industry, uh, government, uh, environmental groups, and indigenous, indigenous communities. That's right. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a lot of theoretical or hypothetical stuff here. Can, can we somehow uh, make it real for the listeners with, with an example? So I was once asked to assist an indigenous community in northern Alberta a number of years ago. A pipeline ruptured on their land and discharged salt water, or brine, into a predominantly marshy area of land. Before the leak was detected and shut off, a downstream area of at least 500 meters was affected. Salt, which contains sodium, is harmful to both plant life and fish and food chain organisms. Contrary to what we might think, sodium is hard to remove from an ecosystem because the sodium binds chemically to clay parts of the soil. Aside from the notice from the government to remediate the spill, the community wanted to have an agreement with the company who caused the spill. So we developed and negotiated a working agreement with the company and it specified a number of things. First of all, a frequent sampling program of water in the affected area for salt in the water. Secondly, a trigger point of 250 milligrams per liter of sodium in the water at which, when it was reached, or if it was reached, the company would need to increase its efforts to excavate soil and, and water containing salt. And thirdly, a recognition that excavation of wetland areas was its, in itself harmful to the surrounding habitat. The trigger point was established to strike a balance between the effects 
of the salt contamination and the effects of the remediation. Your reference to trigger points and to, to sodium and to uh, salt and to uh, limits of 250 milligrams per liter reminds me that you've provided me with another list of about 50 uh, key chemical indicators of water quality and they're divided into various categories, physical indicators, inorganics, metals, and organics. So perhaps we could give the, uh, the listeners some indication of what's acceptable. So for instance, one of the physical indicators is color. So color relates back to the example I gave in one of the earlier podcasts where the elders and hunters noticed a difference in the color of the water uh, with time and particularly in view of uh, development in the land. So there has been a limit, same as a speed limit when you drive along the highway, you can't go more than 100 or 100. It's the same thing in water chemistry. So uh, color, for example, cannot change greater than 20%. I'll stop you there because I know when it comes time to the, uh, the formal lectures, you'll be asked by the students how that's measured, but we'll leave that for another, another day. In organics, what about ammonia? What's an acceptable level of ammonia in a watercourse? Yeah, well, ammonia is important because it's very toxic to, to fish, and it also adds nitrogen into the water, which causes changes in the vegetation. So the limit set by the uh, basically the federal government is one milligram per liter, and that equates to uh, one part in a million. What about lead? Uh, lead's uh, a metal, obviously. It's, it's toxic if levels are elevated. What's an acceptable level? An acceptable level of lead, which is of concern because, uh, for example, it has uh, very adverse effects on the human brain and nervous system. It's set at a very low level, which is 0.005 milligrams per liter. So significantly different than what we were just talking about with, with yeah. ammonia. And finally, uh, an example of an organic is uh, polychlorinated phenols. It's carcinogenic. Uh, I know the acceptable level is very, very low. Can you elaborate? Yeah, uh, very low. It's hard almost to read the zeros here, but it's 0 0.000001 milligrams per liter. So, so the reason we've, we've chosen these out of the, the 40 or 50 on the list is just to give you a sense of the uh, decreasing uh, uh, levels or de decreasing ratios. Recall ammonia was one milligram per liter, uh, lead 0 0.005 milligrams per liter, and as Bruce says, polychlorinated phenols, a very low number, 0 0.000001 milligrams per liter. And, and that gives you a sense of how things can and should be measured. So again, thanks Bruce. Thank you.